0: What's up, podcast? Welcome back to another episode of Speech Analysis on the Public Speaker Podcast. I hope you guys are all are doing well and having a good day. Um, this episode of the Speech Analysis is gonna be Simon Sinek's first why, then trust talk. Now, I really enjoyed this talk. It's probably one of my favorite talks of all time, and given all the talks I've seen, I'll give it that accolade for now. Um, I just truly enjoyed the content and delivery of this talk. There are tons and tons of examples that Simon eloquently articulates throughout the entirety of the speech that are all cohesive, all have a purpose, all have a meaning attached to each other that relates to the larger purpose of the speech. Um, So I think the speech is fantastic on that. I also think the way he used the visual aid, if you haven't seen the talk or my review on the talk, you can definitely go on YouTube so you can check out the way he uh, presents the visual aid. But the visual aid is so simplistic, but it has such meaning for every example that he's talking about um, that I I think it's just a a fantastic delivery and awesome speech. So I hope you guys like the speech analysis. Leave me a speech that you would like me to review, and hopefully it'll make this podcast. But yeah, thank you guys for listening, and enjoy this episode of Speech Analysis.
1: Thank you very much. What I love about events like these, that it's not just people coming together to hear ideas, it's that we all came here for the same reason. Every single one of us came here because we share something, we have similar values and similar beliefs, and it's the reason we showed up. We don't know each other, and yet we know something about each other. Now, this is important, you see, because the very survival of the human race depends on our ability to surround ourselves with people who believe what we believe.
0: Cool. So let's talk about this introduction for a little bit. Um, so what Simon is doing here in his attempt to captivate the audience's attention, because in the beginning of a public speech, you really have to figure out how to get the audience hooked into what you want to say even if they've paid money to listen to you. Sometimes they still won't care. So for me, it's very important to figure out how a public speaker still gets the audience to pay attention. In this case, Simon has used the environment that he is in, which is this TEDx conference, and implicated the audience into believing that there is a unique reason for why they were at this conference. And that reason is that it's not just ideas to to spread and just hear things, but rather there's a common purpose, a common belief around those ideas that will mobilize action, that will be for a larger purpose than just to hear public speakers talk. So in this way, Simon Sinek has now implicated the audience that there is a unique purpose for why they are even sitting in this room, which already starts to captivate the audience's attention to learn more about where he's going with this and why he's implicating them already in the beginning of the speech. He could have started with something else, but he specifically said that all of us in this room have a unique purpose together. The second thing that he did is that he made a transition which was subtle, but it was very um, good because basically he said that the survival of the human race depends upon... Uh, The ability for us to surround ourselves with people who are also believing in the same thing like us and I'm pretty sure he's going to start to explain what he means by that but the point being that if all of us have come to a conference to be able to uh, come around a common purpose around a common belief that is similar that is sort of like metaphorical for the entire existence of the human species being able to surround ourselves with people who believe things like us. So already he's done two things. He's A, implicated the audience so that they feel that there's some connection between them and the speaker. And then B, he's made an, an analogy to the entire existence of the human species, which is a pretty big analogy to then transition into the rest of what he's going to be trying to communicate to the audience. So now the audience feels as if they're a part of the speech, but they also feel that their existence is connected to a larger purpose, which is the survival of the human race and the internal link there the connection there is what simon is going to use to transition to talk about the rest of the argument he's going to be trying to convey
1: when we're surrounded by people who believe what we believe something remarkable happens trust emerges make no mistake of it trust is a feeling a distinctly human experience simply doing everything that you promise you're going to do does not mean people will trust you it just means you're reliable And we all have friends who are total screw-ups, and yet we still trust them. Trust comes from a sense of common values and beliefs. And the reason trust is important is because when we are surrounded with people who believe what we believe, we're more confident to take risks. We're more confident to experiment, which requires failure, by the way. We're more confident to go off and explore Knowing that there is someone from within our community, someone who believes what we believe, someone we trust and who trusts us, will watch our back, help us when we fall over, and watch our stuff and look after our children while we're gone.
0: Uh, what I really liked here is the rate and fluency of his voice. So as you can see, he's getting his voice is starting to inflect more, so it's getting a lot louder, which means there's a little bit more emphasis in some of the example he's talking about in terms of um, trusting other people. And he's getting a little faster and then slowing down near the end and then pausing a little bit. So that rate of his voice and enunciation of the examples and inflection of the examples that he's putting out into the speech starts to get the audience really understanding the concept of trust being a motivator for human action, which is a really good thing because now the audience is obviously going to care more about what else he has to say.
1: Our very survival depends on our ability to surround ourselves with people who believe what we believe.
0: The other thing here is his hand movement is very good. When he says, our very survival depends, his hand goes up and down with the rate of his voice, going down when he's on on the... Uh, second or third word and up when he's back to the fourth or fifth word so there's a really cool sort of dynamic that he's doing with the performance of his body which is also something um, public speakers should take away in terms of being able to convey a message with their hands that correlates effectively with the rate and fluency of their voice
1: i'll share an example with you that freaks me out every time i talk about it what's our most valuable possession on the planet our children right Our most valuable possession on the planet are our children. So let's game out a scenario. Let's imagine we want to go on a date. So we require a babysitter. We have two options. Option number one, there's a 16-year-old from just down the street from within the community with barely, if any, babysitting experience. There's a 32-year-old who just moved into the neighborhood. We don't know from where, but she's got 10 years of babysitting experience. Who do we choose? A 16-year-old. Think about that for a second. We'd rather trust our children, our most valuable possession on the planet, with somebody from within our community with no experience, over somebody with vast amounts of experience, but we have no idea where they're from or what they believe.
0: So this is a really good example. Um, Simon transitions by... Just clearly and bluntly saying, here, I'm going to give you an example. And then he describes two different scenarios of the example to ultimately prove his point about the concept of trust. His hand movement is really good here. So when he says over the other person, his hand is kind of going like a rainbow to sort of show that we're going over to the other side, because that's the example we would pick. And little things like that start to add a lot more value to the speech.
1: Then why do we do it differently at work? Why are we so preoccupied with someone's resume and where they've worked and what they've done for our competition and yet we never think to consider what they believe, where they're from? How can we trust them? How can they trust us? The problem with most organizations, believe it or not, Whether it's a community or a culture. What's a community? What's a culture? It's a group of people with a common set of values and beliefs, right? What's a nation? It's a group of people with a common set of values and beliefs. And the single biggest challenge that any culture or any organization will ever face is its own success. When an organization is founded, all organizations are founded on the same basic principles.
0: So, quickly here, he's beginning his description of, or his process of creating the visual aid. So, he has a marker, he has a pad on a white piece of paper, he's going to start drawing stuff. Pay attention to what he's drawing and how he's going to start using that. We're going to talk about it a little bit more in a bit. But start to pay attention towards the the purpose and the way he creates the visual aid, along with the words that he says.
1: There's some sort of measurement. It's often money, but it can be anything. And then there's time. And when an organization is founded, what they do and why they do it are inextricably linked. They're usually some founder or some small group of founders that are able to put their vision into words and their passion inspires others to come and join them in pursuit of some, something greater than all of themselves. And they trust their guts and off they go and it's an amazing experience. The problem is as they grow, as what they do becomes more successful, They can no longer rely on themselves. They have to now hire somebody who hires somebody who hires somebody who hires somebody who hires somebody who who has to make a decision based on what. And what they do starts to grow, that metric. The problem is why they do it starts to go fuzzy. And this is the biggest single challenge any organization will face. It's this thing right here, the thing that I call the split. Symptoms of the split inside an organization are when stress goes up and passion goes down. Symptoms of a split are things like when the old-timers, the people who were there from the founding, from the beginning, start saying things like, it's not like it used to be. It doesn't feel the same anymore. They can't quite put it into words, but they know it's not the same. Even though the organization might be more successful than it ever was in the past, it's just not the same. Other symptoms are when the organization starts focusing more on what the competition is doing and worrying less about what they are doing. When they start asking outsiders, who should we be? How should we talk to you? At the beginning, they never asked anybody. They ran on their own passion and their own energy. This is what happened in such organizations like Apple.
0: So this visual aid is pretty good. As you can see, it's a very simple xy graph right money and time on both axes and then there's two lines and then there's a circle in the middle where he calls the split uh there's a couple things about this one simon is introducing an original idea so when he says there's a split it's not like there this has never been discussed before but this is his own original branding as a public speaker for this specific concept which is the circle in between the more amount of money you make and the amount of time you spend trying to make that money in which there is a trade-off because more money equals more decisions more choices more employees which means the purpose and the why for why you're doing it ends up not being as relevant that split is something that Simon and this is what I'm sort of guessing but but I just have a hinge on it um, it is branding as his concept that he is able to effectively communicate to an audience and he explicitly says this is what I call the split so when he is probably going to try to give other public speeches or um, this is from 2011 so when he's been pitched to do speaking engagements he's probably relayed to the conferences that he's talking to that I have an original concept about the trade-off between money and time that most organizations companies nations have to deal with and I call that the split and this will be the premise of my talk so when companies and conferences are trying to hire him they're looking towards this original idea that he's been able able to create and can effectively communicate it's not like it is the most original thing in the world but it is how it is communicated which and and the the, the way it is described that makes it original to his own public speech um, and that's something that I just have, have caught on after watching a lot of public speech is that a lot of public speakers and if you want to be a public speaker this is you know something I'm trying to do you need to be able to create some of your own original concepts that are unique to yourself that then you can communicate to the world and that does not mean that the these concepts have to be something like extraordinary like like the next eighth wonder of the world it just has to mean that it has your own interpretation of how you understand a certain concept and how well you subjectively are able to communicate that message. Um, The next thing I want to say about this visual aid is that it's very simple. It's not overly complex. Uh, I did a video a couple of videos ago about uh, a science diagram that was being communicated. and My problem was that science is already complicated and when you don't simplify it to its simplest terms, people fall asleep because then it sounds like a lecture. What Simon is really good at is drawing a couple lines and I, I, I actually think for the rest of the speech he's not even going to touch this image. He may touch it a couple more times. Um, And this is going to be the entire visual aid that guides the rest of his examples for the rest of the entire speech, which is phenomenal. It's amazing that such a simple drawing that took 5-10 seconds to draw up can actually implicate everything that he's going to be saying in the rest of the speech. I think these are when visual aids become the most effective, and these are when visual aids don't become the presentation, but they only enhance the value of the presentation, because ultimately you still have to present, and that's what Simon's going to be doing
1: in 1985 Steve Jobs left Apple and the company went like this and Steve Jobs came back and Howard Schultz left Starbucks and Howard Schultz had to come back and Michael, left De- Michael Dell left Dell and Dell had to come back now whether they're clear on their own whys now or not is yet to be seen but the point is that these founders these visionary guys physically embody the reason the cause around which people showed up in the first place and it reminds them why they come to work now My fear is that one of my favorite organizations, an organization that I love, may be going through a split. United States of America, maybe you've heard of it. (laughs) It's important to study America because like a lot of things that happen in America, everything there is exaggerated. So we can learn a lot from them and hopefully learn things that we can apply to ourselves. Something started to happen in 1947 that embodies this idea here. My grandparents' generation was called the greatest generation. That's what we call them, the greatest generation. Because here was a generation that went off to war to fight this great evil. And everybody was united and unified in some sense of common cause and purpose and belief. And trust was at an all-time high. Even those who didn't go off to war, they were back and they were buying war bonds and everybody was one. And there are stories of young men who would commit suicide, they'd shoot themselves, when they didn't get called to action. We call them the greatest generation. What do I get? I'm Gen X, the unknown variable. They get the greatest generation, I get X. My parents are called the boomers, why? Because their parents were doing it when they came back from war.
0: Obviously, a little funny humor that he puts in there. He knows that that's likely going to get a reaction, so that was a pre-planned joke. Um, but definitely just things like that enhance the, the, the mood and, and ease of the presentation as well.
1: They get the greatest generation, this sense of purpose, this sense of cause, the sense of why. But then they came back from war, and most of them had grown up during the Depression, and they wanted to now experience life a little bit. They wanted to buy some stuff and sort of, you know care about themselves a little more. They've been giving so much their entire lives. And so the 1950s came. And the 1950s were defined by responsibility. Going out there and giving the same kind of loyalty to your company as you gave to your country or to the cause. And we know what the 50s were like. Everybody gave and you devoted your life to the company. The problem is, as we started to become more affluent and the wealth of the country started to grow, that sense of purpose and that sense of cause and that sense of fulfillment and that sense of trust and that sense of happiness didn't grow with it. And this is bad, this is confusing. And so, the 1960s, we responded to it. And we thought, well, this responsibility thing didn't work, so let's try irresponsibility. And the hippie movement was born, right? And the reason the whole hippie movement could exist in the first place is because the country was wealthier, so we could afford for people to drop off the grid, and our parents were wealthier. They were more affluent, so they could pay for us to do it. But we didn't get that sense of fulfillment. And so the pendulum swung again. And then we had the 1970s, the me generation, defined about looking out for your own happiness. And everybody had to have a guru, and it started to become very, very selfish. But that didn't really work either. And again, the whole time, we're becoming more affluent and more affluent, and yet that sense of fulfillment and happiness and trust is not growing with it. And then the 1980s, still that sense of me, but now business was cool again. And in the 1980s, we started to see something that had never been seen before. In the 1980s, we started to see companies using people... To balance the books. This had never happened before, where they would use layoffs to make the numbers work, people to make numbers work. And then the 1990s came about, and dot .com, about the most selfish behavior you could find. Everyone wanted to get rich regardless of anything else. And again, the split continues. The only thing that happens, the only thing that really grows in organizations or societies that go through a split is that the distrust increases. We become distrustful of each other inside our own organizations. We become.
0: So, what he's been able to do throughout the past couple minutes is do an historical analysis from the 1950s, and I think right now he's on the 1990s, of four different decades articulated through the split which is the point of this visual aid this visual aid was not there just to describe the trade-off between time and money but rather it was there to be used as a visual aid that will be able to impact every single example that he talks about in the speech which is a really really awesome purpose for a visual aid and he's doing very good quality analysis so he's going through the 50s the 60s the 70s the 80s the 90s and how each one is contingent upon the one before that provides reasoning for why the other one is good so the reason the were able to be about me is because our parents had more money so that we people were able to afford it we didn't have to focus on things like the war so there were really good examples that are historical that really add a level of ethos and credibility to the public speaker who's being able to articulate these examples combined with the visual aid that is correlating the split or his original concept with all of these examples and that's why i really like the value of this visual aid and how it enhances the presentation as well
1: distrustful of management, we become distrustful of our politicians, and now we find ourselves here today, wondering what's going to do next, how are we going to find the sense of fulfillment? Technology is no help. Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, said that the only thing that the microprocessor ever did was make things go faster, and he's right, and it's making this go faster.
0: Again, using a quote that he had probably pre-planned, and using that quote to then implicate the split because he's saying that that quote indicates why that split is becoming faster. So these, all of these examples are going to be sitting with the audience and impacting the audience at the end of the speech when they start to wonder what this speech was really about and what the purpose of the speech was. There's so much historical analysis embedded into this speech that you can't help but wonder more about the concept of the split
1: as well. Don't forget, technology is absolutely fantastic for the exchange of information and the exchange of ideas. Technology is absolutely wonderful for speeding transactions. It's wonderful for for resourcing and finding people, but it is terrible for creating human connections. You cannot form trust through the Internet. There's something called a mirror neuron, which they've recently discovered. That's one of the things that contributes to how people relate to each other and how we empathize. It's the feeling you get. It's the same part of the brain that lights up. They they did these pictures where they did MRIs. They gave people a picture of someone smiling. And then in our own brains, when we see someone smiling, the same part of the brain lights up when we smile. It's what creates empathy. And it's necessary to create trust. Again, this very human bond. This is the reason why the video conference will never replace the business trip. You can't get a good gut feeling over a video conference. And I'm a big fan of the blogger sphere. the bloggers think that the internet is the end-all, be-all of the world. Then explain to me why once a year, 20,000 bloggers descend on Las Vegas for a huge big convention. Why didn't they just do it online? It's because nothing replaces human contact. It's the difference between leadership and authority. Leadership tells us why we're here in the first place. They remind us why we came here. Authority tells us what to do, or tells us what goal to achieve. In the 1960s, Stanley Milgram did an an experiment that we consider now quite unethical, but the results were remarkable. He invited two people to come to his uh, laboratory, someone who played the role of the teacher, a volunteer, and someone who played the role of the student, who was actually a scientist pretending to be a volunteer. They told the teacher to sit in front of a counter that had a button and a dial. And they said that they were going to ask some questions of the student. And if the student answered the wrong question or refused to answer, the teacher was to press the button and administer an electric shock. And after each shock, they were to turn up the dial one notch. And the notch said, you know, mild, medium, slightly painful, slightly more painful, very painful. And eventually it went red and said, XXX and what happened was there was only really one electric shock administered throughout the whole experiment and it was a small shock administered to the teachers so they could f- see what it felt like and so the experiment would progress and the t- questions would be asked and the, the teacher would press the button and the scientist pretending to be the student would pretend to get an electric shock what ended up happening was that when the t- the student could see and hear the the student making when the teacher could see and hear the student they would scream he couldn't go very far before he quit. He said, I can't can't do this anymore. I'm hurting the guy. And he would quit the experiment. When he could see him, but not hear him, he could go further, but still not very far, before he quit. And the authority figure would stand over him every time he would say, but I'm hurting the guy. The authority figure would say, it's imperative that the experiment goes on. And they would say over and over and over in their heads, the experiment must go on. They'd say it out loud, the experiment must go on. And it was like Nazi Germany when people said, I'm just following orders, I'm just following orders. They had this mantra to justify their behavior of hurting somebody. And then when they could hear them but not see them, they could go further still, but they still couldn't go all the way. But when they could neither see nor hear the impact of of their decisions, 65% of the teachers were able to kill the guy.
0: So this example is obviously very impactful. Um, Two things here, I think, One, the way that Simon explains the entire thing, there's very little stuttering, very little uhs, like he knows exactly what to say. So it's probably been well rehearsed and he knows the example inside and out, which is a good thing to take away. If you're going to give an example in a public speech, especially an example that is historical and has various details involved, because this example, I can understand it fully. I'm pretty sure you can understand it, but there are a lot of details. And if he left out some of those details, we would not really understand the nature of the experiment. Um, he's explaining and articulating everything. So if you want to give a public speech on a historical example, you should know the example inside and out, know everything about it, and practice uh, relaying the example to like an audience or just to yourself multiple, multiple times, so that when you're talking about it again, it feels as if it's second nature. So maybe it's not verbatim exactly how you practiced it. Maybe some of the adjectives change, some of the nouns change, some of your transitions change. But nonetheless, if you know it inside and out, Being able to communicate the example won't be the hardest thing in the world and it'll feel a second nature. And the second thing is that this example is really good. So he picked an example that is exactly correlating to the impact of what he's talking about, especially given the result of 65% of people. So this, again, as we've seen throughout the course of this speech, uh, is only going to enhance the value of the presentation because the examples are so contextual to what he's trying to articulate.
1: The reason the experiment is unethical is because 65% of these people that came to help, thinking that they were good people, went home at the end of the day with the knowledge that they could kill someone. Now what's our mantra of this day and age, I wonder? Is it shareholder value, shareholder value, shareholder value? What is our mantra that we're using to justify the decisions we're making of people that we cannot see and that we cannot hear, and we don't know the impact of the decisions we're making? And you know what the people who had killed the guy, what their biggest concern was? Is anything going to happen to me? Am I going to get into trouble? There was no concern for the person they just potentially killed. Now think about how we do business today. We largely do business on screens. There was a time that if you wanted to know what your employees thought about you, you walked out on the factory floor and you asked them. Customer service meant actually talking to the people who came into your shop. Now, customer service means getting a reply to your email within 24 hours. I actually saw a bank advertising that you could talk to a person. I'm on a, I fly on an airline, and I have miles up the wazoo on this one airline, and you know what they offered me when I, off, when I reached the highest status possible? They offered me a phone number that I could talk to a person. Since when is a person a luxury? Our very survival depends on our ability to interact with human beings
0: and... Uh- very quickly our very survival depends on the ability to interact with human beings is bringing it back towards the beginning of the speech so he's nearing the end of the speech but now you can see the correlation with the beginning which is that survival depends on people who have the same set of values being near you and going through all of the examples and then coming near to the end with another example about whatever airline he's subscribed to and that being the correlation which is that humans should not be a luxury so just overall a really fantastic speech in terms of the content being Um, cohesive from beginning to
1: end as growth and scale and size come into play all of a sudden the humanity of things starts to go away there is a time when a desktop meant something horizontal now it means something vertical and a folder used to be a picture is a picture of something that we used to use these are fun ideas funny examples of how technology has co-opted some of our vocabulary the problem is it's co-opted some other ideas too a friend is not somebody you check their status. Your network is not on LinkedIn. A conversation doesn't happen on a blog and you can't have a discussion on, a, on Twitter. These are human experiences and we need them. We need to learn about each other's values and beliefs. And we can't simply do it through the internet. These mirror neurons don't light up when we're sending texts or receiving IM messengers. What I imagine is a day in which we ha- start to have more human interaction something that requires this thing a handshake a handshake imagine that you want to do business with somebody and they're standing there with you and they agree to all the terms that you offer 100 percent, they agree and you so and you say great let's shake on it and they say no no i agree to all the terms you laid out we can just do business and you go good if we agree then let's shake on it and they say no 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 i agree to all the terms let's just do business If they refuse to shake your hand, even though rationally speaking, they've agreed to everything you want. If they refuse to shake your hand, the odds are you won't do business with them. And if you do, you'll feel very nervous about it. (laughs) This is what trust is. Trust is human. It's about human interaction. It's about real conversations. What we need is more handshake conversations. What we need is more handshake conversations. Discussion, more handshake, debate, more handshake, friends, more handshake, leadership. If we don't, then we continue to go through this, and we will not find our own sense of fulfillment and happiness and inspiration. It requires being amongst people who believe what we believe. Thank you very much. Thank you very
0: much. Okay, so that was first why, then trust by Simon Sinek. Um. One of the speeches I've been waiting to review, because I really think this speech had a lot of different elements to it that were fantastic. One was just the visual aid, the correlation between the visual aid and all the examples he talked about, I think, was pretty good. The second is the simplification of the visual aid, how it didn't have to be extravagant, but still impacted the audience because everything related back to that common split that he was talking about. Third is the articulation of all the examples. Like he, I think he went through at least 10 to 15 different examples of historical moments in time or even little funny things like a desktop used to be uh, horizontal, now it's vertical. Those are things that stick with me and I'm pretty sure stuck with the audience and... Uh, stuck, I don't know if that's a word. But like stuck with the audience and made them feel impacted by the speech, which I thought was pretty fantastic. The final thing I'll say about this is I think that um, what Simon's doing is also trying to challenge the status quo. So this speech was in 2011. And in 2011, that's when... Um, the Facebooks of the world, the Twitter and all that stuff, was really starting to explode. It's 2019 now, and now we know it's here. Like we know it's here to stay. Um, but in 2011, it was still pushing to enter the mainstream and really become the the, the behemoth that it is today. So Simon is using the, the 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 political climate of that time of 2011 to push back on a common assumption that we should just let technology continue to evolve without being able to question some of the things that it's doing on the side. And in this speech, he's questioning the need for human interaction and the ability to so um, simply just recreate those human interactions through things like a screen. Uh, I think the... 1965 example that he's talking about where uh, people were able to kill somebody or 1960 example where 65% of people were able to kill someone without looking or hearing them is the same thing that technology is doing to us in a way because now we're able to not see or hear or feel someone's emotions but we're able to assume that we know what it's like just by the nature of technology I think Simon is doing a really good job at pushing back against that idea and simply saying that none of that is relevant even if it helps and even if it's amazing at exchange of information because genuine human interaction is something that simply cannot be replicated over a screen um, and that's why the blogger example becomes you know really funny at that moment like 20,000 bloggers believe blogger blogs are the new everything but they all meet at a convention face-to-face uh, and the simplification of that message also enhances the complexity of what he's talking about in terms of human interaction uh, not being able to be replaced by technology or by screens. Uh, The idea of human survival being contingent upon people who are like-minded like us is also very important because towards the end of the speech, he says that we need to be able to understand the values and beliefs of other people, but that can only be done if there's a face-to-face interaction. And I think that business example is really good. If you were trying to get into a business deal with someone, or not even business, but just any deal, and you guys have agreed on 15 different terms and agreements that uh, will articulate the, the the relationship that you will be having with that person whether it's in business or whether it's in some other facet of life but you don't shake on it you don't hug on it you don't like genuinely feel a connection at the end of that agreement it would be weird to assume that you would have a productive relationship with that person and i think that example also exemplifies the entire point that simon's talking about about human interaction my one thing is that in 2019 i don't know If he would feel the same because in 2019, I think technology has evolved so unbelievably far in terms of um, the ability for us to feel uh, connections with people over things like Instagram and LinkedIn. And I think at least in my generation, I do feel a common connection, even if I can't interact with them in a human way. But maybe that's just like Gen Z versus Gen X and the differences we feel. But nonetheless, whether you agree or disagree with him, you can't deny the way he presents his argument is is fantastic Uh, and the fact that he's challenging the status quo also gives him a little bit of a chip on his shoulder to really have passion and energy to push back against something which is another thing you can take away from public speak from public speeches which is that if you're passionate about something and everyone else disagrees with you or the majority of people aren't really on your side it gives you more of a reason to really be able to well warrant the argument that you're trying to communicate because there's this burning energy to be able to say that you're right about something. Um, and that's what I really loved about this speech. So let me know your thoughts and comments. I would love to know what you thought about the speech, what you thought about my analysis. Leave a speech in the comments that you'd like me to review and hopefully it will be on this channel. And yeah, thank you guys for watching. I will see you in the next speech analysis. Bye.